Hello and welcome to Watkins Wise Words, a podcast that celebrates conscious, passionate, wise and happy living. Thank you for tuning in and here is your host. So hello and welcome. My name is Steve Nabell and today I'm speaking with Anthony Peake on his book, Opening the Doors of Perception, The Key to Cosmic Awareness. Now, Anthony has studied sociology and history at the University of Warwick and completed a postgraduate management qualification at the LCE and political science. He's a member of the Society for Psychical Research and the Scientific and Medical Network and the International Association of Near-Death Studies. He is indeed a prolific author of many books and his latest is this one here, Opening the Doors of Perception. Uh, um, Anthony, welcome to you. Welcome. I'm really, really delighted to be chatting to you, Steve. Brilliant. Now, um, can I just? Could, it's, it seems like you are building very much on the, on on that book by Aldous Huxley, um, but going well beyond it. And most of us are very familiar with the world around us. You know, when we talk about perception, we look we look out through with, through the senses. But in this book, you're talking about different doors of perceptions, aren't you? I am exactly the the whole point of um, the doors of perception by Aldous Huxley, the 1954 book, that he was arguing that for most of us the doors of perception are closed. Indeed, he was taking the original quotation from a poem by William Blake, uh, and in the poem, William Blake said, and I'm paraphrasing somewhere along the lines, if the doors of perception were cleansed, we'd see that reality is it really is infinite. Mm-hmm. And the argument is that the brain acts as an attenuator; it's um, a reducing engine that restricts our abilities to perceive reality as it really is right brilliant now now i've been reading your book and i'm just curious because i know you're a member of uh, the scientific and medical network i've met a few of their members they're very lovely people generally what's been the response to your ideas and are you viewed as a kind of heretic it's been up and down in terms of the SMN. I'm, I'm no longer a member of the SMN. I, I stopped my membership around about two years ago, but I am thinking of rejoining. Yeah. Um, basically, um, initially, they were very, very interested in my work. Um, and indeed, I did a whole series of talks across the north of England for various scientific and medical network groups. And I presented in Switzerland for them. And I did a presentation at their annual gathering. Um, but I think they 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 loved my first book. They they didn't seem to like my book, The Out of Body Experience, uh, my Watkins book. And I think the reason for this was that I was taking a fairly materialist reductionist viewpoint of the out of body experience. In the sense, of what I was arguing was that it's it's an hallucination. But I think they missed my point, which I think I clarify a little bit more in the new book, mm. is the idea of. When we define something as hallucination, we need to understand what hallucinations are before we consider an hallucination just to be a pejorative term and an expiratory term, because we don't actually know what hallucinations are either. So when I call something an hallucination, I'm being quite specific. I'm very much taking the Green and McCreary viewpoint on this, Celia Green um, and uh, Professor McCreary, who argued that an hallucination is effectively everything we perceive so general reality we perceive is as much an hallucination because it's all brain generated so therefore we cannot differentiate between one kind of hallucination and another and mccreary and uh, green call this the metachoric model and that's the viewpoint taking forward so they're, they're coming back to my point of view um in fact i i did a talk last week for the society for psychical research mm. and uh, professor bernard carr the um the astronomer and physicist was there and he was extremely complimentary at the end of my talk and bernard is a member of the spr and a member of the smn 
Right. Also, uh, the SMN, the editor of the SMN magazine, has been asking me to write an article for some time now in terms of the the network review. So things are things are building up. There's a degree of rapprochement at the moment, but they did a, a really terrible review of my uh, the out of body experience book, which I think was somewhat unnecessary. Oh, dear me. Well, I know that you you debated with the editor of the Skeptic. Um, was that the Skeptic Magazine or Society? Um, Skeptic Magazine, I think. The Skeptic Magazine, yeah. yeah. We did, um, it was fascinating. We did an event, myself and Graham Nichols and Professor Raymond Tallis, the molecular biologist, was on, were on one side. And the other side was um, the editor of Skeptic Magazine, um, the, uh, a neurologist, top neurologist, and Professor Stephen Law, the philosopher. And it took, put, took place at the Swedenborg Society. We just used that as a venue. It wasn't actually under the auspices of the Swedenborgians. But we used their reception. We had around about 300 people turn up. I mean, people were locked outside. They couldn't get in because people were so keen to get involved in this. And we, we did the debate and we all placed our position. And the, the debate's background was, is, is consciousness brain generated? Or is there more to it? Right. And I think the general consensus of opinion at the end of the debate was that uh, we won it um, because our approach was was far more scientific, I think, than the opposition was expecting. They tend to jump to conclusions that if you're interested in these kind of subjects, that you're some kind of sky pilot. Right. And that you're going to take a worldview of, you know, I'm channeling information from the planet Tharg, and this is what I'm going to tell you about. What they don't expect is us to be uh, discussing Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, uh, superposition, and um, yeah. other very, very deep and meaningful areas of quantum physics, and indeed neurology. So they were rather taken aback. But to be honest, we, we were all very friendly afterwards, and the editor of Skeptic Magazine and I met recently. We were both doing an event at the University of Reading, and, you know, we're, we're best of friends, and I'd like to believe that I'm one of the people building bridges, and I think there are skeptics out there who need to realize that their skepticism is fine when it comes to crazy, silly beliefs, yeah. but there is an area where we cannot explain consciousness, so we, we need to work together on this. Brilliant. Now, um, as you said, uh, Huxley was talking about the doors of perception, most of them being closed, whereas he found mescaline open these doors. But there are nowadays, of course, many sacred plants and man-made hallucinatory drugs that are perhaps some might, some people might argue valid ways to open these doors of perceptions, you know, apart from mescaline, peyote, mushrooms, DMT, ayahuasca. What what, what does your kind of findings reveal on, on, on these um, well, you may, you may be aware that um, uh, Watkins commissioned me to write a book a few years ago, which was called um, The Infinite Minefield. Yeah. And in The Infinite Minefield, uh, I go into great detail. The whole book is effectively about um, the, the role of the pineal gland mm -hmm. in opening up consciousness to appreciate and experience altered states of consciousness and other realities. Uh, and in the book, I have a whole section on on dimethyltryptamine the role of dimethyltryptamine in terms of how we how it changes our perceptions i also discuss other substances the magical substance known as soma which was a mysterious substance that seemed to come from the middle east at some time many 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 centuries ago and in india as well and in the book i suggest that these substances do literally open up the doors of perception but in an artificial way yeah. and there is the danger there that whereas over centuries um people have trained themselves in order to be able to move in altered states and to be able to accept altered states for what they are if you artificially 
place yourself in these circumstances it could be quite dangerous because you're, you're catapulting yourself into an environment you don't know the map you don't know the territory you don't know what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do mm. whereas adepts such as the people in the during yoga tradition of bond bond buddhism and various other people they will do that and they know how to do this um and that i think is the area we need to be carrying forward and being very careful about mm. um but at the same token you know we in the new book i argue that this can happen naturally and it happens naturally to people and at the end of the book um the uh, infinite minefield i suggest that the pineal gland itself is the clue to this and the pineal gland is some form of portal um and again i'm not making these statements based upon just belief i'm making these statements based upon very very solid neurology and neurochemistry because the pineal gland we know creates melatonin and melatonin is very very similar in its constituents to um dmt and there are receptor sites in the brain called the tracheomene associated receptor sites that are designed to work with dimethyltryptamine mm. which effectively means that dimethyltryptamine has evolved in the brain and funnily enough around about 2 years ago a researcher called Jimo Borjejin at the University of Michigan did a series of experiments and they found um DMT in the pineal gland of live rats you know right. so oh no it's it it's 90% certain it's a neurotransmitter so it's evolved Brilliant. It's brilliant. Well, as you say, you know, some of these kind of ways, especially how they're being used now, are forcing these doors open. Like, there's a whole culture around LSD for many decades, really, that is a kind of forcing it open. And people talk about bad trips and good trips. But in, in, in terms of more natural ways of opening, what kind of more natural ways have you found? Okay, for instance, um, my, my own viewpoint on this uh, I'm a classic migrainer. Right. So I get migraine with aura. and whenever i have migraine with aura um because effectively the the, t- the type of migraine i get is i don't tend to usually get headaches yeah. all i get is i i seem to be catapulted into some quasi hallucinatory state mm. whereby um my visual field breaks down um i sense a feeling of disassociation with this reality i i have profound feelings of deja vu of recognition of the circumstances i find myself in and i believe that uh, that migraine which is phenomenally common there's somewhere in the region of around about 12% of the population mm. will experience migraine at some stage in their life and i think there's a small percentage of that that have classic migraine and it is known that 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 migraineers can have very very extreme hallucinations um i i cite in my new book um the work of um elvis sacks the british the the anglo-american uh, psychiatrist he wrote a book called migraine um many years ago and he discusses in great detail the hallucinatory gen- types of migraine mm. so this is the first opening of the doors of perception when the doors are slightly open in the sense that we have a feeling that there is something more than the reality we exist within. Brilliant. Okay, and then just very quickly moving on just a very quick synopsis. I then in the book present evidence that that migraine, classic migraine and temporal lobe epilepsy overlap. There are areas neurologically whereby you cannot tell whether it is temporal lobe epilepsy or migraine because mm. migraineers have aura states so do temporal lobe epileptics and temporal lobe epileptics are when the doors are even more open. and i have a whole chapter on this and temporal lobe epilepsy is an interesting experience 
I think for I think people. I've got a quote here from your book. A young woman believes her doors of perception had been flung wide open at the onset of her schizophrenia facilitating experiences, making her suddenly able to perceive reality in all its terrifying power. That's quite a powerful uh, little quote there. Mm. Um, what about so these so things like migraine, temporal lobe epilepsy, and I think in your book you talk about Alzheimer's and autism as other doorways. Yes, I do. Uh, again, I was surprised on researching the book uh, how many links can be made between what I call the, the Huxleyan spectrum. And by the Huxleyan spectrum, I mean a spectrum of, of um, illnesses in raised commas, neurological sets of circumstances, neurological constructs, that the doors are open wider and wider. And for instance, we get from temporal lobe epilepsy into schizophrenia. From schizophrenia, which the doors are, are wide open, and effectively this is why schizophrenics or people who experience schizophrenia have such difficulty in functioning in normal society yeah. because they are perceiving a universe that is completely and utterly different to the universe we perceive. For instance, time perception is completely different for, 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 um, for schizophrenics. They seem to bounce backwards in the past, in the future. They're, 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 they're completely lost in this, this psychological fugue. Now, there are links between temporal lobe epilepsy, schizophrenia, but also schizophrenia and autism. Because, and it came as a surprise to me to discover that if technically somebody under the, under the ages, I think of seven or eight, cannot be diagnosed as being a schizophrenic because it's not recognized as an illness for children at right. that stage. Right. So they will normally be recognized as some extreme form of autism. Now, right. if you then move into autism, you discover there's something called the intense world syndrome, which is a known variation on autism, which put forward by somebody called Markham. And in this, the child, again, is reacting to a sensory world that is far more open. They hear noises and sounds, light is brighter. Everything is much more powerful for them. And they start to show signs of schizophrenia. And indeed, there is a high correlation as children get older that they, they can possibly develop schizophrenia-like symptoms. So there is a relationship here. But there is also then, we then have savant syndrome. So there are children and young adults who have autism or particular forms of autism who then show the most amazing mathematical abilities, the most amazing psychological abilities. For instance, there is a young girl that um, an associate of mine is working with over in America a lady called um, uh, Barrett, and she's working with a young child who has is known. She, she this this kid is 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 precognitive. She's not precognitive. She has telepathy. Mm. She can read people's thoughts, and there's no question about this. There is strong evidence that this child can can read people's thoughts. So her doors of perception are open to such an extent that her brain is attuning into a field of information that we are ordinarily denied because our brain, brain cuts it out, mm. if that makes sense. Yes, indeed. Well, there is a chapter in your book um, on genius. I think you call it the entrance, which I thought is very interesting. You talk about individuals such as Vincent van Gogh, which um, I, I guess could easily fall into this, um, you know, opening the doors of perception, looking at his art. What about people like Mozart? I guess he could fall into the same category, I guess. 
They could. I mean, Mozart, for instance, in my book, The Daemon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, I very much focus in on um, the muse or the, the, the creative force. And indeed, I've just finished my 10th book, which is going to be a book on um, J.B. Priestley, the British uh, writer and playwright. And so many writers state and musicians state that the, the, their creativity is downloaded from somewhere else. Mozart said he heard the tunes in his head. All he did was work them down. Right, you know, it, yeah. it's as if there, there is certain people who can appreciate the creativity from somewhere else. Rudyard Kipling is another classic example of somebody who, his, in some stages, his, his short stories were dictated to him by an entity he called his daemon. Right. So it does seem that when the doors of perception are open and people are creative, it seems that the communication channels between what mystics would ordinarily call the higher self, yeah. which I call the daemon, the communication channels are open to such an extent that that person can become phenomenally creative. Um, and, you know, that... that Autism, for instance, I have a section in the book on um, the uh, uh, American super savant, Kim Peek. Mm. And Kim Peek, you know, I've spoken to one of the scientists who worked with Kim Peek. I interviewed this guy. And this guy, in fact, was the, the um, technical advisor on the movie Rain Man. Yeah. And he said that Kim could, could read two books at the same time. Mm. He, could, he could mirror read. If you placed a book in front of a mirror, he could still read the book. And even if you put it upside down, he could still read it. And he remembered the location of every word. He had total photographic memory. And he had amazing mathematical skills. He used to, when he was in a hotel on tour in America and he was bored, he would get the telephone directories out. And he'd add up the uh, telephone numbers of everybody in the telephone directory. Yeah. And when they checked, he was always right. But he couldn't tie his own shoelaces. Um <laughs> So here we have this kind of amazing alternate skills that these people have. And I think that cre intensely creative people, such as, such as Vincent van Gogh, they, the doors of perception are open, but they are still considered to be within the neurotypical range. So therefore, they are creative, and their creativity allows them to exist within society as, as we, we deem it to be. Yeah. I mean, when with these um, opening of the doors of perception, because what is on the other side? I mean, lots of spiritual uh, um, teachers and uh, shamanic journeys have kind of gone and explored and, and come back. And your book really hints very strongly about uh, the other side. Can you just say something about what's what is on the other side? Do you think on of these doors of perception, or is that a vast universe, almost impossible to describe? The, the, the area of the side, funnily enough, um, you may be aware of this, um, but Watkins have already commissioned me to, buy, to, to write um, a sequel to the doors, opening the doors of perception, which is going to be called technically, uh, at the moment we're thinking of calling it through the doors of perception yeah. or the view from the other side or something like that, yeah. because Watkins themselves are very intrigued of where I'm taking this idea. Yeah. But in this book, I argue, and it's something I've argued in all my previous books, is that reality is far wider. Mm. than the reality we perceive. I called it electromagnetic chauvinism, the idea that we believe that what is out there is because certain stimulants, certain vibrations of the electromagnetic spectrum cause certain stimulations in our brain, which is how we see things. And we believe that what we see is what really is. But of course it isn't. Anybody who knows anything about how the brain functions 
knows that this is not the case. In fact, there's something known as naive realism. These are people who believe that there's a one-to-one relationship between what your senses present to you as what is the external world is. It's far broader. We know from the existence of dark matter and dark energy. We know from in quantum physics entanglements. We know that objects can be in two places at the same time. The universe is far more mysterious than we can ever imagine it being. And that universe that's hiding behind the matrix-like reality we live within is what I call the pleroma. And the pleroma is the real reality. This is the dream sequence we're within. We are in a, a lifelong dream. And again, I've cited in times in the past that you get people who um, have what's called false awakenings, where they're dreaming and they wake up. Yeah. And they then wake up again. And then they wake up again. Who's to say that the final awakening, when we wake into this consensual reality, is still part of the dream? You know, because we, and I think this is where we're going. This is what maybe happens to us when we die. This happens to people when they have out-of-the-body experiences. This is when people go shamanic traveling. These are all pointers to a much broader reality than the one we exist within. Fascinating, Anthony. Amazing. Now, just for my listeners, if you want to find out more about Anthony's work, go to www.anthonypeak.com, and that peak is spelled P-E-A-K-E. That's .com. And Anthony, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for, for speaking with me. I know we could go on for hours. Uh, there was much more I wanted to ask you about, but um, I think I'm going to leave it there to intrigue our readers to buy the book, Opening the Doors of Perception. Anthony, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Steve. It's been wonderful talking to you. Like what you've heard? Be part of our community by visiting watkinspublishing.com, following us on Twitter at Watkins Wisdom or liking us on Facebook.